Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks very much for being here with us today. I just finished talking with Francesca Bray and Dagmar Schaefer about the volume that they recently co-edited, along with Peter Koklanis and Etta Fields-Black, called Rice, Global Networks and New Histories. This came out with Cambridge University Press in 2015. Now, the interview is fairly extensive, so I'll keep this intro relatively short, but I'll just say this is a very, very exciting volume. And it's exciting not just because it brings together um, uh, scholars with very, very different regional specialties. Um, And by regional, I mean not just in terms of geography, right? And there are scholars coming to this volume who are based in um, geographical specializations in the Americas, in Africa, in various regions of Asia. But also, um, they're bringing very different specialties and regional specialties conceived in terms of disciplinary practices and disciplinary skill sets. So in this volume, you can read um, genetic analyses, environmental histories, anthropological accounts, and much, much, much more. It's also really exciting because, as you'll hear um, in the course of the next hour, this is a project that really models what collaboration and collaborative writing can and and perhaps should look like. Um, All the way through, this is a project that really resists the kind of balkanization that a lot of us who are trying to work on objects or things or uh, topics or processes that have a global scope probably experience in our own field. It can be really hard to have a conversation across um, fields, across specialties, across time periods. But this volume really does it. It does it beautifully, and it does it in a really, really exciting way. Um, So I'll leave it at that. I hope you have a chance to get your hands on a copy of the volume. Um, The introduction is fabulous. The whole thing is fabulous. And um, if you're anything like me, you will learn a whole lot from it. So thanks very much for listening, and thanks for your support of the channel, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. 
I'm here today to talk with Francesca Bray and Dagmar Schaefer about their really fantastic new edited volume, Rice, Global Networks and New Histories. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Dagmar and Francesca, and thanks so much for navigating this time difference among the three of us and also for making time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward. Thank you very much, Carla, for having us. Of course. So Thank you so much. We're really looking forward to this. Thank you. So, Francesca, um, let's kind of start with the genesis of the project. In the volume, you mentioned an American Historical Association panel on which you were commentator that first brought you to the project that ultimately resulted in the volume. So can we start at the beginning and can you bring us into that panel and tell us a little bit about your experience at the AHA and the ways that that inspired um, your interest in making a larger project out of this? Well, the interesting thing is that I wasn't actually physically at the panel. Um, I was invited to be a commentator by one of our co-editors, Edda Fields Black, who had recently published a book on black rice and the problematics of rice in Atlantic history. And she had been invited by the AHA to put on a special panel on new histories of rice. So she contacted me because I wrote a book many years ago called The Rice Economies, which is fairly well known among rice historians. And she thought I would be a good person to comment on the panels, the presentations at the panel. So I agreed. And it turned out that all the papers presented in the panel, one by Edda herself, one by Peter Koklanis, our other co-editor, and a couple of others by eminent Atlanticist historians of rice were all debating about the black rice question, which I'd never really paid particular attention to before, I have to say. So when I was commenting on these papers, um, unfortunately, I couldn't attend because I had family issues at the time, and I couldn't make it back to the United States. But I sent in my my comments, which started off by saying, this is really fascinating because I, I come from a totally different set of big questions about the history of rice. I come from a background where East Asianists, Southeast Asianists are all talking about the question of involution and whether rice-based societies were inherently incapable of developing towards capitalism. And here I am looking at a set of papers which are asking quite different questions. They're not interested in the teleologies of capitalism. They're interested in forms of oppression and in giving voice to people who have been deprived of a voice by history, giving agency to people who are usually regarded as being hands rather than minds. So I brought up this issue as the preamble to my comments, and everybody was as astonished by my comments as I had been by their papers. So we all decided, well, now we must do something about it. <laughs> Maybe we should have a workshop. So I said, oh, I know exactly the person who can who can host a workshop for us, and that's Dagmar Schaefer, because she's working at the Max Planck Institute on histories of technology and innovation, and I'm sure she would be delighted to host us. So the rest, as they say, is history. 
we had we had the workshop um i think it was about 15 months after the actual aha panel and previous to that dagmar had brought edda peter koklanis and myself to berlin to discuss with her how we should best set up this workshop and from there on it went very quickly and it all started to fall together so i'll now perhaps hand this over to uh, somebody else to carry on with the questions and the dynamics of the the meeting so that so we'll have a chance um a little bit later to talk about some of the specifics of the big questions that you just raised, right? The sort of what is the black rice debate um, and what's at stake there? And you've already talked a little bit about that. What's the agricultural involution debate and what's at stake there? But before we get there, um, Dagmar, can you tell us a little bit about your experience in coming to this project? And for you, um, what was perhaps particularly compelling about the nature of the project, as we've just heard Francesca describe, given what you um, have been interested in, what you've been working on? Well, this was actually quite interesting for me because uh, when Francesca first approached me, I was a little bit, um, I mean, I was very flattered actually, but I was also very astonished because certainly from the, from the perspective of rice, this did not necessarily speak to me. But there is certainly, if you look at it from another perspective of technology and innovation, it speaks, at least by that point in time, it spoke to some of the issues that I was really very interested in in how technology and innovation is discussed in global debates, then certainly this whole history of taking a material and then trying to write a global history about knowledge, about skills, about practical matters, about practices. And once Francesca proposed the project to me and Peter and Edda and we talked with each other, I realized there is such a huge potential to really rethink how we talk about knowledge about the circulation of skills, how we relate it to the history of capitalism and how kind of very secluded these discourses have in fact become, even though we try to write something like a history of globalization or we figure there is some kind of globalization going on there. But then when we talk about rice in Asia, we have totally different ideas about what what a kind of like what makes up the logic in relation to what makes up the logic when we talk about rice in Africa. So I was totally fascinated from the beginning about the potential such a project had or has, in fact. And it's interesting, um, just from my perspective, that we're seeing kind of increasing attention. Maybe for me, it just seems like it's increasing because it speaks to my vast ignorance right before this, but increasing attention to um, kind of global and, and specifically collaborative histories of objects and entities specifically um, uh, kind of contextualized within ideas about and practices of capitalism. I just had a chance to talk with Anna Ting about her new book on Matsutake mushrooms um, mm-hmm. and sort of that project. So I think there's a there's a really exciting conversation happening um, that the Rice book is part of. And, and this is one of the reasons I'm really excited to be talking about this right now. Mm-hmm. I heard Can I- yeah, an intake of breath. So whoever was responsible for that, please, um, you can have the floor right now. I think actually because I, I, I listened to that interview too, I can shamelessly confess. Yeah. So <laughs> I think, I think uh, that, that this, 
I, I, sh I would want to say one word about that because certainly there was a period of the last decade when everybody wrote a history about everything in a global perspective, like the history of sugar, the history of coffee, the history of cotton, the history of uh, you say what <laughs> and what you, what you can actually do with that. And it's amazing how this literature like on the one that I would want to say, even though it concentrates on one one specific material, at the same time it's developing in totally new directions. And I think that's at least I'm very proud of like that the Rice book became one of that where you don't necessarily talk about the intricacies of rice, but you see there is a potential to discuss about topics that in the globalization debate have been quite ideologized mm -hmm. in discourses. So the book, it's, oh, sorry, I, I heard another intake of breath. Francesca, was that you? And did you want to speak to this? Yes, I, I wanted to, uh, to say that the, the great inspiration for me in this was Sidney Mintz's book, Sweetness and Power, which he published in 1985 and which has been tremendously influential in the field. And the wonderful thing about it, it was a great inspiration to global historians generally because it brought together the analysis of modes of production with regimes of consumption. <laughs> and uh, so this opened up whole new ways to think about the relationship between politics and materiality. And this was a, this was a fascinating challenge. I think that we suddenly saw that there was enough comparative material, enough scholars working on different aspects of rice and its place in the rise of global capitalism, whether in localities or in global circuits, that we might be able to attempt something. Um, obviously, nobody will ever have quite equal sweetness and power, but <laughs> something, something which would start to make sense of of the importance of apparently ordinary foodstuffs in really not simply providing a basis for, but shaping the ways in which capitalist formations around the globe develop and articulate with each other. So this was, for me, this was the great... Um, the great inspiration and I think it was only when we were really into the halfway along actually finishing the book as a collaborative venture that all of a sudden histories of tea, histories of porcelain, histories of cotton suddenly started tumbling out of the presses saying here, here we have these new clues to the rise of global capitalism. So uh, the, there were one or two really landmark studies in the field, but then these more focused studies have only just, I think, started to come out, and each of them brings something very distinctive. Mm -hmm. So let's actually lay a little bit of groundwork for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to actually see the book. What the book does, um, and, and we'll get into much more detail um, in, in the um, hour to come, right? Or, if, uh, or in the conversation to come, rather. It offers a very expansive global history of rice that's rooted in very specific local cases that spans 15 chapters, um, all written by specialists in the histories of Africa, of the Americas, and of several regions 
in Asia. Several major areas of multidisciplinary inquiry contribute to the project, and they include, but are not limited to, global history, commodity studies, um, history of the environment, and the history of science and technology. So there are a lot of really interesting um, kind of regional specialties in terms of disciplinary practice and disciplinary skills that are brought to bear um, in this collection, as well as specialties in terms of geography and geographic focus. Now, we've already talked a little bit about, or um, and Francesca, you've already mentioned a little bit about um, two of the major large-scale debates that kind of brought uh, that brought you to the project and um, that really framed the project. And I think it would help to talk a little bit about the nature of those debates so that listeners can understand um, not only what they are, but really, as I, I mentioned before, what the stakes are, like, Right? Why they're so important, not just for how we understand rice, but also for how we practice global history. So the first one is called the Black Rice Debate. So Francesca, could you start us off by saying a little bit about this? What's the nature of the Black Rice thesis? Um, what for you are some of the most important uh, critiques of the thesis, right, or ways of critiquing the thesis? And what's at stake here um, for, in the Black Rice Debate? Well, the black rice debate is something which began, I think, about um, 15 years or so ago, and which was really crystallized in a book by Judith Carney called Black Rice. And it arose out of studies of the slave trade and its impact on modes of production and on the rise of American, well, global capitalism because of the triangular trade across the Atlantic. So it's part of the debate of Atlantic history, and it is particularly framed, I think, in the context of a, what should I say, a revisionist history of slavery in the United States. And I think it's impossible to understand what's at stake and the broader implications of this debate if you don't think about the enormously important legacy, the moral legacy of slavery on historiography in the United States. So the black rice debate is uh, an affirmation, uh, a claim on the part of many historians that um, the Africans who were transported in the slave ships to the Caribbean and the Americas to work as slaves on plantations or in sugar factories or picking cotton um, – these people had traditionally been represented as without agency and as working according to the knowledge systems that had been established by their owners, by the people who owned the means of production and, and uh, controlled the mode of production. So... The vision there had been that people were brought from Africa. If they were lucky enough to survive, they were sent to work in the fields and they basically had to do what the overseer told them to do. So they were, if you like, they were 
adding labor but no value apart from the actual quantity of the labor they were adding no qualitative value to what was happening in the plantations and fields and factories of the western atlantic and the black rice debate started when people began historians began to say well actually one of the reasons why rice started to be grown in the americas was because it was the food of many of the slaves brought from west africa and they had grown it in west africa in their communities before being enslaved and they had therefore brought with them technical knowledge and organizational knowledge which might have been let us see if we can show that they were important in establishing the actual nutritional base but also um, patterns of organization of production in the new world so the black rice historians wanted to show that african slaves were subjects not merely objects that they had agency that they had skills and knowledge which were important in shaping the society and the economy of the world that they came to they were not simply powerless victims so that is basically the uh what should i say the the vision that underpins the black rice debate what then happens is that of course people uh some people make grander claims than others um it's led to a lot of historiographer uh hi- historiographical um arguments about how you use things like um the records of slave auctions in the americas and what they tell you about the origins of the people who were who were brought across who were purchased by different owners and set to different kinds of work um some claims have been more ambitious than others so judy carney for example wants also to restore particular agency to women and her argument is that women's knowledge was extremely important in shaping the rice communities of the western atlantic and other people say well um actually maybe the rice went across but uh we cannot prove these arguments which you are advancing and we have we see gaps in the evidence that actually the people who were being brought across were um originally rice farmers so that those are the kinds of arguments that are taking place but as i said they're all framed in this broader debate of restituting agency and dignity to people who were enslaved. Great. Thank you so much Francesca. Um Dagmar it's um it's it's pretty clear right um how uh Francesca's description speaks volumes to the major themes like technology and innovation that you've talked about um mm-hmm. bringing you know bringing your interest to the project but did you want to add anything or or say anything about the black rice um uh, issue and debate at all in so far as it speaks to your interest and and your interest in the project? Well, I would like to add probably something that you would bring up uh, anyway is that uh, within this debate and uh, the kind of the arguments that that you bring forward the question of skill always comes up and that has been really central I think to the history of science in the last decade. So what does it mean to really 
think about a, ma a material such as rice, a food that is a commodity that is uh, that is like has been central in the globalization debate. But then this specific focus on how it how such material carries practices or not. This uh, I think. Amazingly, this was discussed quite different in Asia, where, in, like, for as far as I understood it, also through that process, uh, Kani makes such an important argument about the people bringing the skills, and in other cases, like individual people having the skills, like in China or Japan, means that there is no advance, there is no development, everything remains small scale. Or this small-scale thing uh, contributes to advance in a different way. So that once over a sudden you see like it's very different just because you change the region. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Um, so we've heard a little bit about one of the major debates now that frames the book and the contributions both to the book and the contributions that the book is making. Um, let's talk about the other one. So the other major debate um, that uh, you mentioned very early on, Francesca, is something called agricultural involution. Um, now this takes us to a different regional area of the globe. Um, and let's kind of do the same thing that we did for black rice. Um, would you mind saying a little bit, Francesca, about the nature of this thesis. Um, what's the nature of the agricultural involution thesis? What are some of, um, in your, to your mind, uh, the most important and interesting critiques? Um, and what's at stake here? Right. Um, well, <laughs> well uh, the 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 actual the actual term agricultural involution was coined by Clifford Geertz. It was his first important book, written published in 1963, um, when he was still a cultural ecologist rather than, um, you know, the maestro of cultural anthropology that he subsequently became. And Clifford Geertz had worked in Java, and he had been extremely interested in the way that rice had formed the had been the staple food of colonial java and had been cultivated small scale in a way in the interstices of the um the sugar industry and the culture system the cultivation system that was in place in colonial java set up by, encouraged by the Dutch. So you had a kind of parallel economy of commodity production, large-scale commodity production of sugar and peasant subsistence production of rice. And because of the pressures on um, the pressures on land and because of demographic growth, according to Clifford Geertz, um, people had to grow more and more rice out of the same amount of land. This was possible because rice production could be infinitely increased if you put in enough um, skilled and dedicated but non-mechanical labor the returns to labor fell sharply, but there was still enough produced to feed a growing population. However, in the absence of any determined effort from the outside, 
qualified to transform this system into one that would be more rational, shall we say, in the terms of the modern economy. Um, this meant that not only the rice did the rice fields become more and more the object of infinite inputs of skilled material labor, but the villages where the rice was grown had to negotiate increasingly complex varieties of their social institutions in order to cope with all the tensions and pressures on them. So this was the image of agricultural involution, which Clifford Geertz identified in Java. And so in a sense, it was a, it was a form of um, rice determinism. And he contrasted this with the case of Japan. And the case of Japan, he said, was quite different because in Japan, the rice farming system, although initially similar to that of Java, was enabled by the growth of industry from Meiji period on in Japan to take advantage of new forms of input, whether it be improved um, improved tools and eventually machinery, whether it be chemical fertilizers and so on. And thus the rice sector in Japan did not become this kind of isolated backwater. It profited from the development of an industrial economy in Japan. So he contrasted these two different cases. Um, one of the things that is at stake here historically, I think, is illustrated perhaps by Mark Elvin's book, um, The Pattern of the Chinese Past, where he identified involution in China, in imperial China, um, around rice farming and, and all the associated manufacturers and uh, commerce that grew up around uh, based on rice farming in China and he saw it as a system that was able to grow quantitatively but it would not undergo radical qualitative transformation under its own steam the only thing that would produce such transformation was the dramatic intrusion of the western powers breaking a historical tradition. So, uh, in a way, this fed this fed into a kind of story about science and technology in countries like China. Okay. That basically um, they, they, they don't they don't produce radical innovation. They don't produce real development. They simply produce quantitative growth, which is what uh, many people now call Smithian growth. Mm -hmm. And that is that is somehow that's all very well, <laughs> but it's but it's not real human progress. So it's it's a kind of narrative about civilizational progress, mm -hmm. if you like. At least that's how I see it. And that I think is why uh, you know arguments about um, the history of rice farming in China or or Japan or Indonesia or Thailand are so charged. They're not just about what happened to rice. They're about kinds of society and even, if you like, kinds of human being. And as Dagmar pointed out, um, you know, one of the things which tends has tended to be underestimated is the kinds of skills 
that these systems produce. Now, these skills have not been underestimated by the Japanese, and we can come back to that later. And in my own work, I, I talked about skill-oriented systems, but um, basically, you know, if you if you say, well, large-scale machinery was not going to come out of this system, you are saying something which is very powerful in a comparative history of human progress. That's right. Dad, yeah. did you want to, um, to add to that? I just wanted to add something about Clifford Girth because I still know how upset, not upset, but let's say like emotional um, Peter Boomgard was when we were talking about that and how he really stood up and like he really doesn't know if he hates that guy or if he loves him. Yeah. <laughs> so, because it's, it's not only the rice, but it's like that guy brings forward a very, very strong theory that really changes also or like makes people to rethink what they know and it, it really brings a region on the map but it also makes them makes them rethink how they should think but then you cannot get rid of that theory anymore <laughs> and i still know that like he was basically he was very passionate about that <laughs> oh yes <laughs> so, so this is i think listeners can hopefully start to um, appreciate the um, uh, also some some of the importance of and the contributions of the volume and of thinking about rice. So as we've just heard, right, thinking about rice um, can mean thinking about what it is to be a human being. It can mean what it is to think about and think with um, the ideas like civilization, like science, right, like people, um, state, language. I mean, there's so much bound up in this um, that starts from but does not at all end with and is not at all limited to merely thinking about an object. Um, Francesca, you briefly mentioned the idea of a skill-oriented model. Before we kind of turn um, to the collaborative process of the book and to other um, kind of larger issues, did you want to speak to that at all? Well, I think um, I think I will just briefly. It comes in principally in the contribution by Penelope Franks, um, in which she talks about the place of Japanese rice agriculture in shaping the modern Japanese state, the modern Japanese economy, modern Japanese forms of organization. And there Penelope is uh, using her own research, but also within the broader framework of a lot of Japanese research, which has talked about a special model, that a special Japanese model, which as always is open to critique, but um, the uh, the specialness of the Japanese model is tied up with this intensive input of skilled labor, which the Japanese scholars argue, contra Elvin, is not necessarily subject to diminishing returns. It can, in fact, generate... Uh, increases in productivity. And that was what I was interested in when I was talking about skilled labor and the conditions under which you can generate surpluses rather than simply gnaw your own fingernails a little nearer to the knuckle. Um, the, the Japanese model is famously um, – uh, the, the group of economic historians who argued that 
the West had an industrial revolution and Japan had an industrious revolution. Mm-hmm. And this notion of the industrious revolution was first coined by Akira Hayami, um, and it has been much taken up, and it is called. It has attracted a lot of interest by comparative historians. And the question of skills is not just, you know, do you have little, small little fingers and and the kinds of muscles that allow you to bend over and transplant. Right. Um, this is something which has been explored by historians of industry, technology, the economy. In Japan, to show precisely how the kinds of not just agricultural but manufacturing and productive skills, the um, the uh, economic institutions and organisations into which peasants and local manufacturers were inserted, how these were not simply reactive to the arrival of Western models, but in fact, they were absolutely fundamental to the way in which the Japanese appropriated them. And this explains some of the long-term distinctions between the way that Japan has developed and has organized its economy and has uh, designed its technologies and what has happened in the West. Thank you so much. And thanks to the both of you for giving us such um, a really wonderful introduction to that. I think graduate students doing comprehensive field exams everywhere are going to be rewinding and taking (laughs) notes, making sure, because this is such a great overview also of um, what's at stake in these really, really important debates. So let's move um, from here to talk about the, the volume itself, kind of the processes and the practices and the skills that went into creating this object that we're talking about. Now, the introductory matter to the book makes it very clear that this is not a typical edited volume. Um, and instead, the process of putting together the volume was very much um, and very deeply and fundamentally collaborative in ways that, you know, edited volumes aren't always. Now, um, Dagmar, I'll, I'll ask you to talk a little bit about this. And I know the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science is very much known as, and, and I want to just take a moment to celebrate this space as really a, a really important space for, um, no, really, I mean, for um, making these kinds of collaborative projects possible and for really fostering and encouraging and enabling a kind of collaboration that most of us um, really don't have an opportunity to be part of. Um, and, and, you know, most projects don't have an opportunity to benefit from otherwise. So thank you for that. Um, and would you um, make maybe start us off by talking a little bit about the practices um, and the process of collaboration. What did that look like in practice on the part of the authors um, and also the editors? Yeah, Yeah, maybe I should start with saying that uh, usually everybody who has done such a collaboration knows it can be the most exciting and exhilarating event uh, of your life. Or it can be really <laughs> exhausting and very, very difficult. And actually, uh, I must say, I, I'm really fortunate, especially with the RISE project, but also with other projects in which collaboration always, I think, is just the most wonderful thing that can happen. I have some back noise here. Okay, Um I think with the RICE project, what the really fantastic thing why you take a bunch of people, you give them some room, you give them some time, and 
they come up with the most amazing ideas. So this is what basically happened in the case of the RISE project. In that case, it was actually from the beginning quite clear who would be involved as a kind of core team. So it was Francesca, Bray, Peter Koklanis, Edifields, Black and me, and we were meeting and we really took our time to think about like how can we make such a project work? So how do we make people come together. And I think from the beginning, why, I mean, you can make that very easily by having an edited volume. But what we wanted was like, we want to make them talk with each other and then probably really be impacted by talking with each other and leaving the room and probably having fresh and new ideas. And I think this is exactly the idea of a working group book as, um, uh, Rainy Dustin and Jürgen Rent quite often do it or did it already at the Max Planck Institute, and I'm trying to do it also more often as a way of like writing together, which is so central. If you see, like we have such complex problems, we are really no longer in the historiography of one person making one big claim. We know that this can be quite fallacious. Uh, that it is really interesting if more people come together and think together. And then certainly the problem is just like, how do you really bring that to paper? And I think this is actually what a working group book tries to achieve by giving people time to, to take in, to process and uh, to, to find new ways of expression and basically to have time. Yeah. Francesca, did you want to speak to this at all in terms of your own experiences of this collaborative process and, and what you thought was um, perhaps most important to making this work so well? Well, I think um, I think there is a there is a magic about the Max Planck Institute that that uh, <laughs> both both um, excites and daunts people. They know that you know much is expected of them. And I've been involved also in a number of collaborative projects over the years. And I have to say that uh, this one was truly exhilarating because of the, you know, the spontaneity with which we formed a working group between mm -hmm. 15 people, you know, yeah. quite a lot of us. We really, we, we, argued, we discussed, we spoke to each other, we, you know, we exchanged ideas and information. And um, then what was so impressive was that after we'd actually had the workshop where each person had presented the paper and we discussed them and we talked, we'd given, we'd carefully planned so that we would have uh, a full long morning at the end before people went. We're followed by lunch so that everybody left happy. Um, and we had this occasion, this opportunity really to talk to each other as a group about what we, whether we saw this coming together as a book and if so, what the great themes, the grand themes would be and how it would work out. We gave people, of course, the opportunity to say that they didn't wish to be in the group, but everybody decided that they wanted to be in the group. <laughs> and then when they left, um, we had another, I think we had another day and a half where we sat down, again, the four editors, 
And we went through and we really thought very carefully about the structuring Mm -hmm. and the conversations within the sections. And then we wrote to all the participants and we made suggestions. We, you know, we proposed the structure. We made suggestions for individual papers to be revised and everybody did it. You know, they all entered into the spirit of it. I don't say they just all said, Oh, yes, right. Okay. That's 12 points. I will follow them all. There was dialogue as well. Definitely dialogue. But, but it was, it really was like a, a group project. It was astonishing. I was, I was, I've never really had quite such a close working relationship with 15 people at a time. <laughs> I think actually one one of the things that really worked well with this group that we could use the energy of the moment. So I think this is certainly very important for working group books. So if you come together for conference and everybody already has written the paper, which is fantastic, and then you sit together and you 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 like kind of like need need to produce something. It's different than the project of people coming together with a draft and then you have a really, or we at least had a, a, a very fantastic conversation going on and we were all engaged mm-hmm. in the, or we were able to engage into the debate. And I think the, the, um, the editing team with Peter Koklanis and Edda Fieldsberg and, and with Francesca, and I think it worked out very well. Everybody was just in the game and we brought in very different expertise. So Peter is more in economic history. Edory brings in historic linguistics. It's not only the regions that are different, but it just was really complementary. And that that worked quite well already. So that's, I think, one of the reasons the, the, the event makes a lot of, uh, makes a big difference and how the editing team then drives it forward. So how much it really engages into the project. Mm-hmm. And this worked really well in this case. Now, Francesca, okay, can I tell? Yes, please. Oh, I just wanted to add to that, uh, to what Dagmar was saying is it was very interdisciplinary. And I remember at one stage, um, Somebody, maybe it was the Cambridge editor, but maybe it was somebody else saying, oh, um, you know, the the article on, the chapter on involution in Java um, is full of all these tables and statistics. Um, (laughs) Do we have to have all these? (laughs) And, 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 you know... uh, Peter Bogard and, and I and, and Peter Kaklan said, yes, it's actually very important because, you know, these days so many histories, global histories, for example, of commodities are written very much from the perspective of cultural history um, and maybe material history. And something like economic history has rather faded from fashion, but it will be back because it's absolutely essential to understanding so much of this. So I, I think it was we have something really to be proud of there because we really have strong representations from a whole range of fields, including economic history, including linguistic analysis, including history of epidemiology, in, including these new and experimental techniques in genetic mapping, which two of the papers use. So in a sense, it's it's a methodological resource book as well as a series of case studies. Actually, you can't see me, but I'm nodding. That's, I, that's, <laughs> I, just need to, I just need to emphasize this also because it's, uh, I think uh, the fact 
that interdisciplinary really interdisciplinarity really happens here as, is so central also to the three chapters of the book or the three parts of the book that makes it work together as something that you can use. Are you still there? Yes. Okay. I think we're also yeah. I'm just listening. I'm working against type here, <laughs> trying not to talk too much. But I'll, I'll talk right now again. Um, so I just want to mention for listeners, we won't have a whole lot of time to talk mm-hmm. about this in detail. But um, a couple of times now, the both of you have mentioned the three major parts of the book, right? And um, you talked about the ways that. Um, the contributions really constellated around these three major approaches. And those, um, so I just want to mention them for listeners. Those included uh, purity and promiscuity. Um, this is part one. Environmental matters. Um, this is part two. And power and control. This is part three. And uh, part one on purity really um, emphasizes approaches and contributions from the history of science and technology. Part two really emphasizes approaches and contributions from the history of um, kind of environmental history. And part three focuses, um, among other things, on studies of governmentality. So I just wanted to kind of get that out there um, for listeners so that they can kind of have a sense of the range of kinds of um, constellations that are out there. So you've all, um, you've both talked a little bit already about the importance of and what can come out of having a truly interdisciplinary um, set of approaches and a, a truly interdisciplinary conversation. And in fact, um, Francesca, just to kind of tag on to uh, one of the things that you were saying, I'm hearing more and more people from lots of different fields right now calling for the importance of economic history. So I think if there are two approaches that I'm hearing people all over the place um, championing right now, it's um, a, a need to take economic history seriously and a need to take archaeology seriously as, um, you know, kind of the methodological contributions to conversations that we're having and that, you know, ways of changing the nature of the conversation in ways that seem necessary and productive right now. So yeah. what are some of the other, um, uh, and you can feel free to speak to that at more length as well, um, but what are some of the most important ways that you feel the volume contributes to how we understand and possibly how we potentially practice global history. Uh, and Francesca, if you wouldn't mind um, starting us off, that would be great. Well, hard, hard to know which topic to pick. Um, one of them, I think, is, is work and human identity through work, which I think I'd like just to throw out there and maybe come back to. But the other thing that was really fascinating in the course of doing this was that here we have this crop that feeds over half the world and that has done so for at least three or four centuries now. It's a really, really important crop. It's been transported around the world and grown in all kinds of new places. It has been traded, certainly, but actually it's not a global commodity. It's a commodity and it's a commodity that is used around the globe but it is not a global commodity in the sense that it will travel infinitely and indifferently to different places around the globe. And one of the things that was so fascinating about the different contributions to this volume was that they highlighted the fact that people are very, very particular about what kind of rice they will eat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and therefore, you you have to add the history of taste 
into the history of production, the history of economic negotiations in understanding this. Taste was extremely important in forming the regional alliances between, say, the um, uh, Southeast Asia and the Southern China markets, who would freely exchange rice with each other, um, but it didn't travel to Japan, for example. And um, when you look, when you look at the the modern the uh, modern circumstances where we actually can more or less measure this, uh, there's no equivalent of the Chicago futures market for wheat or corn, there's no equivalent for rice. There are some local rice exchanges, but they operate quite differently. And it's only about 7% of global production of rice that is actually traded on international markets. So that was a bit of an eye-opener. You know, you have something which you think of as, you know, there it is, it's being grown and any of it can go anywhere. Mm -hmm. But actually it can't. And yet it's fundamental to the way in which the colonies were established and fed. It's essential to the rise of um, cotton manufacturing in the Atlantic Basin. It's, it's crucial to all these things, but it's not behaving as at all as I expected it to before we started this comparative exercise. Dagmar, mm-hmm. did you want to um, jump in and talk about what you take to be some of the most important ways that this informs how we might practice global history? Uh, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I could repeat what Francesca says, but I want to, said, but I want to add something. I think uh, for me, it really circles around the way in which we, we um, think about like that broader claims are really necessary. So like a, a big history approach is necessary and how it needs to be informed by regional history and careful reflection on what this regional history actually or a regional case, a specific case, not even a regional case, probably contributes to the entire story. And I think for me this, for me personally, this part two on environmental matters with all the the way, with all these different contributions that brought in how science writes history and we write history into the sciences was a total eye-opener. And for instance, I mean, also the methods that we are using nowadays, how do we reflect about it? How do we bring in the history of Africa? What do we know about that? What role does sociolinguistics actually play or historical linguistics? A very nice example is Hayden Smith, who is talking about this this American uh, landscape that he like he does he looked at air photography to understand how a landscape changed and what you could still see and this careful reflection about uh, a part that you would never reveal in other sources. I think for me this was a total eye opener. And in fact, some of the challenges in reconciling kinds of history, right? And Dagmar, you just mentioned big history. Mm-hmm. Um, this, there's been a lot of conversation about that. Um, often um, in conversations with other historians who are interested in reconciling different kinds of approaches, including approaches that take kinds of sources like ice cores, 
um, yeah. treating seriously as historical archives and including historians who are interested in thinking about big history, the conversation often turns to challenges of reconciling scale and different ways of thinking about scale, right? And I know uh, prior to our conversation, one of the things that we had been talking about over email was a kind of um, the challenges. Uh, I think Francesca mentioned the challenges of thinking about um, and working with periodization, right? Different ways of thinking <laughs> and thinking about time um, when practicing global history. Um, Francesca, did you want to speak to that a little bit, sort of how to reconcile that in terms of um, uh, your experience with the project? Well, it was obviously something which we all had to wrestle with as we tried to put together our own different periodizations um, and also to think about long-term trends. And I think um, what Dagmar and I came away from the project with and um, one to other people as well was a feeling that we we really we really can do more with this issue of scale, whether it be the scale of um, production within a region, whether it be the uh, the geographical scale across which something is produced and circulated and knowledge is produced and circulated, or whether it be the scales of history that we look at. And um, that is going to be, I think, the next part of this project, if you think of it as a big Ooh. project. Um, but uh, to, to talk about it just in the context of the rice volume, let me take the example of the first section, which is um, uh, purity and promiscuity. And, and there, the papers there talk about the tensions inherent in farming, but also in scientific thinking or technical action, the tensions between the universal and the particular adaptation and how in Naturian terms, you know, you try to purify the natural from the social um, in the terms of the Green Revolution, you look for universal um, universal crop breeds that can be transported anywhere across the globe and grown, provided you put in the right knowledge, know-how, and fertilizer. And this is uh, something which um, Jonathan Harwood has been working on for a long time. It's a political choice that universals, the, the politics of universal breeds and universal development are very different from the politics of locally adapted environmental niche policies, whether it be towards knowledge or whether it be towards the production of crops. So um, it might seem that this is just a practice of modernity. It might seem, well, you know, the Green Revolution is, is something very special. But if you actually trace its roots back, you can see that similar challenges have been there for, for centuries. And if you look in Chinese history, for example, it's sufficiently well documented that you can see that very often uh, government would would say, okay, listen, we have this great new seed that we brought from Champa um, last year, like 1023. And it's really going to solve everybody's problems. So we would like everybody please to grow it. And then we will have lots and lots of double cropping of 
of cereals, which means that everybody can pay more taxes, which will be great. And um, in the you know, the Soge historians have been able to disentangle how this actually worked out on the ground, which is, of course, everybody ferociously opposed and said, not in my backyard. Um, only by the imposing of taxes was the motion eventually carried. Uh, so that sounds a little bit like the Meiji Restoration um, flat of the sword agricultural policies. You know, you do this or you either go to prison or you have to pay uh, huge fines. Um, it, when it comes to the Green Revolution, you don't necessarily have to pay fines or anything, but if you don't adopt the policy, you will lose your land because you will get too much into debt and you won't be able to continue farming. So you can, you can trace long-term continuities here, but obviously the, the, the context and the conjuncture in each case is completely different. And that is one of the things which really, I think, is such a fascinating challenge to periodization. You know, uh, we're seeing very similar unfoldings of politics in action, materialization of politics and knowledge. And, um, you know, when can, when can you justifiably compare and when do you just have to say it's different? I think those are fascinating questions. That is a super fascinating question. Dagmar, did you want to speak to these issues at all? I just briefly, I know we are running out of time, but what I, I think this question of like how historiography deals with scale and the other side of like how scale actually impacts what we see and what we don't and what historical actors did see and uh, and did not see because they were acting on diverse scales or whether they were thinking in diverse scales. That was something that I really took out of this project as being much more important than I thought beforehand and that I really wanted to spend more time on. And I think this is also a reason why this RISE project has such a wonderful energy still with the people that they that we all feel we need to do more with it. Mm-hmm. So on that um, on that note, um, I, I we are almost at the end of our hour. I have about a million other things <laughs> that I want to ask you. It's been such a fascinating conversation, um, but I also want to bring us to the close um, so that maybe we can keep talking about this afterwards, and listeners hopefully um, can get themselves a copy of the volume and look through it and come up with their own questions and ways that this might inform their practices in thinking about and working through global history. Okay, so in the meantime, um, in a moment, we'll get to where this might be going next, um, both for the project and for you individually. But before we get there, is there anything at all that we didn't have a chance to talk about, um, specifically about the rice volume and its um, kind of genesis and formation that you'd like to mention for listeners? Um, And perhaps, uh, Francesca, we can start with you. Well, I'd just like to say that um, it is, of course, a history study, but we have quite a few anthropologists mm-hmm. in there as well. Mm-hmm. And um, that conversa- those conversations were very fruitful. And I think one of the nice ways in which the sections worked out, the parts of the book, is that they're not only geographically diverse and chronologically diverse, but but in every one of them, there is at least one chapter where you get to see real people. Mm-hmm. Thanks to us, after <laughs> <laughs> That's 
not only the anthropologists do. <laughs> I'm against such a distinction. <laughs> Dagmar, for, for you, is there anything um, you'd like to mention that we didn't have a chance to talk about? No, I think, I mean, you are not seriously asking that question, right? Because <laughs> give me another two hours go. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah but I, I, also only one, one point, I think that uh, a, a really important point in that book is, I think that it does not reconcile and uh, like mesh everything together. But it is really a working book that tries to really have give voice to the diversity and see the similarities. So, and that this happens with a bunch of people who came from really very different disciplines, from economic history, and as as Francesca already mentioned, from anthropology, archaeology, all these different fields. That truly, I think, um, that is that is something that makes me proud of the book because it doesn't mean that you really, really, in the end, you don't know it's a soup and uh, you don't know what the ingredients anymore are. I think that's a nice result. So um, let's turn to maybe what comes next. Um, what's next for the project? I know, um, again, in our uh, preparation to talk today, um, Francesca, you've talked a little bit about what's uh, what might actually be a, a new kind of thing coming out of the project, but also what's next for you individually? What, what are you each working on and inspired by right now? And Francesca, maybe we can start with you. Oh goodness! Well, um, no, another hour, right? <laughs> no, at the, at the moment, my 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 life is not my own because I'm president for two years of the Society for the History of Technology, ah. and um, part of my uh, part of the reason I think I was uh, put into this elevated position is because the society really wished to become truly international, and in particular, it really wanted to. Uh, open up much more to Asian scholars and Asian perspectives, but also perspectives generally. I, I think um, you know many people in the history of technology have they've long been critical of, of grand narratives and politics behind them, but they really are interested these days in talking with people who work in fields which bring quite different perspectives, perspectives of scale perspectives of what a society values, perspectives on what constellation of factors you have to think about when you think about technology. Do you need to think about religion? Do you need to think about aesthetics? You know, what what do you have to fold in here? Mm -hmm. um, and it's not always evident, but it can be very interesting and surprising for people from different backgrounds to talk about these things and then return with very new visions of what technology is in their own society or their own field of study. So that's been one of the things which I've been working hard on trying to facilitate in the society and in my own work. Um, I think what I am particularly excited about is that I've managed to persuade Dagmar to take us on for... The, for <laughs> <laughs> it was so difficult. <laughs> Daughter, daughter of Rice, which is currently entitled Crops on the Move, where we're going to take these questions of scale, whether it be the scale of the historiography or the scale of the his historical object, 
seriously and use people who have worked on different crops to provide a focus so that we can really, we, we have a common ground, but at the same time, we're bringing very different perspectives. So um, I've become very interested in tea lately and how tea, uh, you know, w- what happened to tea when it was sudden, it suddenly became a, a child of the British Empire, um, as opposed to something that came from China where people knew nothing about how it was made but they certainly knew how to sell it mm-hmm. um, anyways um, for, the, for the new project we have people who work on tea we have people who work on citrus we have people who work on rice we have people who work on tobacco um, There, are, we could of course add potatoes and apples and god knows what <laughs> but we're going to follow the initial plan that we used for rice which is to bring together people who have overlapping interests and see how it makes sense to broaden it to bring in people who really make interesting contributions so if anybody anybody out there listening has a favorite crop that they want to discuss (laughs) please get in touch with me okay great Dagmar um, what about you what are you currently um, inspired by and, and what are you working on right now yeah, uh, Francesca spilled the beans already. So uh, I'm, I'm uh, certainly also interested in scale and scope. I think uh, what this rice book, it was one of the stones in the mosaic that brought me to rethink um, about how we talk about knowledge and how we could probably make that um, move towards a different language, but also a different way of thinking about um, what we want to write about in history. So it um, rice is a, I mean, it's not only a food, it's not only an ingredient, it's part of a process. And that became very, very clear to me while I was listening to all the people talking about rice in the different regions, that there seems to be a, a, a forgotten strand in history. I don't want to say a forgotten strand probably, but there seems to be a strong inclination of historical actors for long periods to really think about a process. And obviously they thought about a process quite differently about how you actually get your food or how you actually live and what part rice actually played therein, how you uh, identify the skills, why you would want rice and grain or the like. So I'm very interested in thinking about the, the way in which people think about a process, envision it, how they implement it. And I'll gather the group of people at the Max Planck who really explore that from different perspectives and who really go away from a history that also a history of science, I think, that now no longer, but for a long period has very much concentrated on explaining details to something that tries to, what is the history of processes? What kind of processes were actually considered relevant? How is knowledge contextualized in that process? What kind of scientific or technological or whatever other other knowledge came out of it? And what role did, that's probably the, a very important part for me, at least as a historian of technology, did materials play herein or materiality? Well, thank you both. Um, this has really been a pleasure. Best of luck with crops on the move. I think I'm, I'm probably not the only one at the end of this hour who will be eagerly anticipating 
reading that volume as well. Um, so thank you again. And um, really, congratulations on an amazing book. Thank you very much, Carla, for having us and giving us the chance to talk about our most beloved topic. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we will see you next time. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.